Patience is not just simply sitting on your couch going, well, whenever, God. Patience is an action. We're, we're, we're imitating those who through faith. Well, what do we have faith in? We have faith in God's promise. We have faith in his word. We have faith that what he said will come to pass. Now we hang on to that. We lay hold of that. You know, last week was Grey Cup. Anybody watch the game? Wow, all right. A couple. <laughs> I guess it's when it's Winnipeg and, you know, Toronto. We don't really care. All right. <laughs> See you next year for Saskatchewan and Edmonton, all right? All right, all right, all right. But you know when you see a, a receiver get open, right? They got to run somewhere. They got to get to where they're supposed to be. There's a place you need to be to receive, right? You don't just stand there on the scrimmage line going, well, I guess if the quarterback wanted me there, he'd push me. Okay, no, you got to run. You got a plan. There's a plan. You run. And then you don't just stand there hoping that the ball get thrown and smack you in the helmet and just get stuck in your face mask. You know? Maybe you got a really good quarterback that can pull that off, but for the most part, you've got to not only get open, but you got to reach down, pull that ball down, grab it, hold it tight. There is something to be said about receiving. And, and in the scripture, receiving is not something, once again, not passive. That's why we need faith. Faith. That's why God makes promises. He doesn't just do stuff and say, surprise. Sometimes there's a surprise and it's good, but many times he makes a promise. Why? It's not just to prove, I knew this was going to happen. He makes a promise so that you'll get where you need to be and that when the time comes, you will receive that promise. You will lay hold of that promise. You will wait for that promise. You'll prepare for that promise. You will hang on tight when everybody else is running away. You say, I'm not letting go. God's not a liar. So the word I want to tell you today is God's not a liar, but the devil is. I don't want to talk too much about the devil. He doesn't deserve all my time. But you need to be aware. The Bible says don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And it's, the Bible tells us beware. Your adversary roams around seeking whom he may devour. Like a roaring lion, he's seeking whom he may devour. Let me tell you, if he has to seek whom he may devour, that means he can't devour everyone. That means there's something God's equipped you with. You say, I'm not going to be devoured. That's why, the, that's why he tells you, beware, your adversary. So the word devil and the word adversary are kind of the same word. And, and it literally is somebody that's opposed to you. It's also a term that they'd use in court. An adversary is the lawyer on the other side that's accusing you, that's bringing charges against you. That's what the devil is. And we see that in Scripture. We see that in Zechariah when he's standing up accusing the nation of Israel. And, and, and high, the high priest Joshua is standing on behalf of the nation of Israel in this vision. And Satan stands next to him, accusing him before the Lord. And, and Joshua is, is dressed in, in filthy clothes and rags because the nation of Israel had rightly, sinned, had, had rightly deserved those filthy rags. They'd sinned against God. They'd rebelled against God. And Satan was bringing those things up. And then all of a sudden, there's this voice that says, the Lord rebuke you. The messenger of God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Isn't this the one I plucked from the fire? Man, can you imagine being Joshua on that day, standing there and going, everything the devil is saying is true. I did do those things. I am filthy, like he said. Those are all facts, and yet it's, it's, possible, to, 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 it's possible to speak facts and still be wrong. When you leave out the major truth, you're still wrong. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody who's had kids know there's a way to deceive without lying outright. You can, you can say things that are technically true, but you're leaving out some very important information. Do you know when Jesus was tempted? Listen, temptation is just deception, right? Temptation is deception. Temptation is the enemy trying to get you to believe something other than what God said. However that plays out, that's what temptation is. And so the devil did not stand up and say and, and, and speak to Jesus uh, using quotes from uh, some foreign text or, or, or using arguments Jesus had never heard. The devil quoted scripture. What's more true than the scripture? But even truth in the mouth of a liar becomes a lie because you're leaving out the major point. Jesus responded with the word of God. He responded with God's voice. And so you can imagine Joshua saying, he's not wrong. We did all those things. And yet a greater truth came out in that meeting where the Lord says, I plucked him from the fire. See, that's what you're leaving out. I plucked him from the fire. That's what uh, the 10 spies that came back from the promised land and said, well, it's a good land. It's all these things. But there's giants, there's forts, there's, there's, uh, they're way too strong for us. Nothing they said was technically wrong, but it was still a lie. It was still a lie because it left out the most important factor, which was God. Joshua and Caleb didn't say they're lying. Joshua and Caleb said everything they said is true, except if God gave us the land, we should go in. I mean, you can get all the, the, the facts that, that, that uh, you want that just back up the fact that you're a loser and back up the fact that you're going to die and back up the fact that you've got no future. You can, you can find data that will back that up. I don't care who you are. If you're trying hard enough, you'll find reasons to say, I'll never do this. And yet, if you leave out the most important piece of data, any scientists know that. You can have all these data, you can have all this great hypothesis, but if you're leaving out a major piece of data, if you're leaving out a major factor, everything changes. It becomes a lie. It becomes deception. Here in, 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 in the book of Matthew, I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? The disciples said, well, that's a mixed bag. People say you're Elijah. People say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. People say, and they just kind of said, this is what people say. And then Jesus asked the really important question. Okay, so then what, who do you say I am? You know, how important is it for us to know who he is? You can be walking with him and still not know who he is. So they, they, they go, okay. And, and, and Peter says something that nobody's dared to say. Now, to, for us, it just seems like a very obvious thing to say because we've, we've been taught the word of God. We've been, we have the New Testament. We have these testimony of who Jesus is. But to Peter, nobody's ever called Jesus the son of God before, including Jesus. It really hasn't been explicitly said that he's the Messiah either. Peter says both of those things. You are the Christ, or translated in his language, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns to him and says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. That was a revelation from God. My Father revealed that to you. And he said, I say to you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon, son of the dove. I say to you right now, Simon Bar-Jonah, that upon this rock, this rock of revelation, this rock of truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And on that foundation, Jesus tells them how it's going to happen. Verse 21, from that time. Why from that time? Because there are some revelations you have to get. There are some truths that you have to get solidified before you can get the next thing. Before Jesus could tell them about his death, he first had to tell them who he was. From that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then be raised up on the third day. Now, nobody seems to pay attention when he says this. They hear the death part and they freak out. It trips a breaker in their brain. They can't get back from it. But this is something that he had to tell the guys on the road to Emmaus. This is something that Peter had to talk about on the day of Pentecost. This is something that Paul had to talk about when he talked to his fellow Jews. This is something they missed. They always saw the Messiah as somebody that would come and kick butt. Rambo, the prequel. Jesus is going to come and just mess up the Romans. And he's going to set up a throne. And anybody that resists him is going to get squashed like a little bug under his thumb. And they're looking forward to it because we're on his side. And it's going to be fun. And one of us gets to sit next to him while he just kicks butt. Like, we'll get to, we'll get to sit on a throne next to him. Oh, yeah, take that. And then Jesus says, well, i got to suffer first and die. And then be raised up on the third day. And they're like, forget that part. What? Suffer, die. And so all throughout the New Testament, the, the, the messengers, including Jesus and then his apostles, had to show them through the scripture why the Messiah had to suffer. That that was in the book, right? That was there. He didn't make that up last minute. That's been told. They just skipped over that part. Okay, all right. Why he had to die. That he wasn't just there to restore Israel. He was there to do something even bigger than that. Thank God he came for the hope of Israel. He came for the consolation of Israel. But he was there to do something for the whole world. So here, from that time he began to tell them about this, and Peter took him aside. The nerve, and Peter's riding high on his revelation, right? Peter's the new teacher's pet. He's been called out. He's been brought up, you know. And then he takes Jesus aside, and he says to Jesus, it says he began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Peter, Mr. Revelation, can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I got some things to say. I know you're a young man. Peter might have been a year or two older than Jesus. You're a young man, Jesus. Let me tell you hard facts of life here. Began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. What a weird thing to rebuke somebody and at the same time call them Lord. <laughs> No, you're wrong. It's not going to happen, boss. Yeah. <laughs> hey, chief. Uh-uh, I'm not going to let that happen. In fact, he doesn't even just say, I'm not going to let it happen. He says, God won't let it happen. So Peter is now Mr. Revelation. He's speaking for God now. Remember you said that nobody revealed this to me, that God revealed it to me? Well, I got a new word for you, Jesus. You don't have to die. God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. Shall never. Wow. All right. He's got guts. Sometimes guts are bad. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, right? It's like a gas pedal. It's good when you're going in the right direction. It's bad when you're going through the window of the salon, right? Like there's a time that the gas pedal is good. There's a time when you need to not press it. And he's pressing the gas pedal hard. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, the teacher's pet, his best buddy, 
Get behind me, Satan. I don't know how many of you would stay in the church if I ever said that to you. <laughs> right? You're like, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, preacher. I'll see you later. I'm, I'm, there's a church down the, the street that will value my, my insights. Now, I've never said this to anybody. I, I actually don't foresee myself saying that to anybody. But <laughs> Jesus said it. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, an offense to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Now hear what he said. Jesus, even though he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, who is he talking to? He's talking to Satan. He understands that Satan is right now using his buddy Peter. It's a hard thing to think that sometimes Satan would use somebody you like, somebody you love, even when they don't know it and they don't mean anything bad by it. You know, Peter was not a bad guy. He wasn't possessed by the devil at this moment. He was just influenced. And you know, Satan knows how to play on your emotions, don't you think? But we all think that, you know, being used by Satan means all of a sudden we're going to go out and, and uh, you know, just paint ourselves a certain color and, and uh, do sacrifices in the woods at Halloween or something. Like, that's what sa- sa- Satan worship means. No, I mean, s- Satan will just use what he thinks you'll do. He'll, he'll use your emotion. He'll use your affection for people. He'll use, he'll use all these things. And it doesn't even mean that you're possessed or that you're, you know what I mean? Peter was not possessed, he was, but he was influenced. He was deceived. Sometimes when you're deceived, you deceive somebody else. Now listen to this. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. A stumbling block to Jesus. Now do you think Jesus is is just saying that for effect, or do you think that's true? That that Satan was actually a stump, that this, this thing that just happened was a potential stumbling block for Jesus. I want you to, if you read the New Testament, you find out Jesus had to battle to get himself to the cross. When he was in the garden, he said, Lord, if there's any other way, do it. But not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. In other words, his will might have been different. He might have wanted something different, but he said, no, not my will, but yours be done. And from the moment he said that, there was no turning him back. He was ministered to by angels. He was, he was, he was refreshed uh, and strengthened for the journey ahead. But I want you to know, it, we sometimes imagine that Jesus never had to deal with emotions like you do or fears or doubts. He never gave in to fears or doubts. He never let those rule his mind. He never sinned. And yet he became a human like us. And the Bible says he was tempted in all things. It's funny how we all know that he was tempted, and yet we don't think he was actually tempted. Do you know what I mean? Like we act like he was tempted the same way you're tempted if someone in the parking lot said, hey, you want to go rob a bank with me? (laughs) No. That's not really a temptation, is it? Hopefully. (laughs) I don't know. If that is, you need to work on something. Somebody goes out and says, hey, hey, you just want to like go smash some vehicles and then rob a bank and then, you know, drive off a cliff and see what damage we can do. I wouldn't be like, man, that's tempting. Probably shouldn't. You know I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> Wouldn't look good. I mean, no, that's not a, sorry, that's not a temptation for me. That's not a real temptation. So when the Bible says he was tempted, I really believe he had to stand firm. I really believe he had to know who he was and know who his father was. I really believe there was a battle in the wilderness. And I believe there was a battle here in this moment because you know what? If it didn't mean anything, he could have just turned to Peter and said, Peter, that's not right. Buddy, stop that. 
Instead, he says, Satan, get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, where is a stumbling block? If, it's, if it has a potential to trip you in your journey, it has a potential to trip you up in your race, where is it? It's in front of you. It's in front of you. There's a lie in front of you that's going to stop you from getting where you're supposed to be. There is a lie, there's deception in front of Jesus that is trying to keep him from going to the cross. Satan tried to kill him when he was a baby, but failed. If he can't kill him, he's going to get him to compromise his mission. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar seemed more impassioned to try to get them to compromise than to, ha than to have them dead. He didn't want to throw them in the furnace. He begged them, just bow. So here... He couldn't kill Jesus. He couldn't wipe him off the face of the planet. So what am I going to do? I'm going to keep him from reaching his goal. Right. I remember when I was young, somebody told me, and, and it stuck. Somebody told me, you know the gifts, they quoted the scripture, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, which means God doesn't take back the gifts he's given. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't say, I changed my mind. Remember, he's not a son of man that he would change his mind. So he doesn't take it back. God won't take the gifts God gave you away from you. Satan can't really take them from you either. He can't take away something God gave. But he does steal them. How does he steal them? Through deceit. By getting you to lay them down. By getting you to forsake them. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that there was that his sheep would know his voice and he would call them by name. And when he called them by name, they'd know his voice and they'd follow him and he'd lead them to pasture and he'd lead them in and out. But he said there is a thief, a robber that doesn't do that. He, he, he comes another way. And in fact, he says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, have it to the full. The thief comes to steal comes to steal something God's given you, something God's put in you, something God's put in front of you. He comes to steal that, steal that vision, steal that purpose, steal that gifting. And the only way he can do it, here's what Jesus said. He said, my sheep know my voice, and they don't follow strangers because they don't know the voice of strangers. The way the thief steals is to get you to follow the wrong voice. The way he steals is through deceit, deceiving you. Get you to not believe what God said. Get you to not believe what God said about you, about your purpose, about, about the church that God called you to, about himself, about all these things, about your family, all these things to deceive you enough that he didn't have to take it away. He can just get you to stop. You guys ever noticed that most people will be heavily attacked in the area that God's given them grace to minister in? Whatever the grace on their life is the area that's under attack. So I've known people that had a powerful healing ministry. And they had to fight battles for their health. Strong battles for their health. I know people that, that are some of the most caring, compassionate encouragers. And yet, they battle discouragement. They get the question because they've been called to care and, and be that, that heart that, that reaches out and finds the lost and brings them back. They're the ones that have to say... Does anybody care about me or do I really care? Maybe you have someone straight to their face say, you don't care about me. And it stings them deeply because that's the thing that they, they, is most real to them. Somebody who's been called to a teaching ministry. I've seen this over and over again. 
get, get, get thrown into, into every wind and wave of doctrine, get, get dragged off into speculation, vain speculations that get them off the call of God on their life, get them off the word of God, get them off the purpose of God. And they get off into crazy things because, because the enemy's trying to hit them right where they are called to minister in. Don't be deceived, friends. That's what the enemy will try to do for you. Maybe the reason you're battling so hard in this area is because that's the very area God wants to work through you in someone else's life. And the enemy wants to stop it before it becomes something. And if he can't steal it, he can get you to lay it down. Why is that? Like, why, why would he attack you in the area you're called to? Why would he attack you in the area you're gifted you have a grace on your life? Because, I mean... An illness would slow anybody down. A discouragement would hurt anybody, right? Like, why is it specific? I think one of the reasons is you get to the point where you say, what right do I have to minister in this area? What right do I have to lay hands on the sick when I'm battling this? What right do I have to encourage when I'm so discouraged? What right, because, because what's happening is instead of saying, I am being used by God and there's a righteousness which comes by faith, I'm now basing my righteousness on me and my ability on me. But the Bible says, the righteousness which is by faith says this, we believe, therefore we spoke. Righteousness by faith says I've got a message to preach. I've got a gospel to preach. And I don't preach it because I'm good. I preach it because he's good. And that message is good. Your kids might say to you, what right do you have to tell me what to do? I know what you were like when you were a teenager. You say, I, I'm, I, I want you to know clearly, you're right about that. But I'm not saying what I'm saying because I'm perfect. But now I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And now I've, I'm going to teach my kid. I'm going to train my kid in righteousness. Jesus says something that I think we all need to learn how to say to something that's in front of you, to a lie that's in front of you, to a lie that's right in the middle of your eyes. It's right in the path. It's between you and the thing God called you to. It's between you and the person God called you to reach. It's between you and the mission God's given you. And it's standing right, and it's got a potential to trip you and knock you down. And you need to learn how to say to those lies, get behind me. You're in front of me, but you, need to be, you belong behind me. When something's behind you, you don't look at it again. When something's behind you, you're not meditating on it. When something's in front of you, that stands between you and what God's called you to. It needs to get behind you. You need, and I, I've, I learned this at a young age, thank God. You can't fight thoughts with thoughts. You can't just think the right thing and hope it battles the wrong thing. You need to open your mouth like Jesus did. How did he respond to very real temptation in his life? Open up his mouth. And he, what did he speak? By his opinion? He spoke the word of God. Well, my goodness, Jesus, you're the word made flesh. You could have said anything. Wouldn't that have been the word? He spoke the word of God. He said, it is written. There is something solid here. Don't try to use scripture against me, devil. I know what, I know where this came from. I was there when it was written. This came from me. It is written, man should not live by bread alone. It is written, thou shalt not test the Lord your God. It is written, you should worship the Lord your God, and him alone will you serve. I want to read you something from the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Y'all ever spent some time in Revelation? Get those first three chapters. I mean, the whole book will bless you. The whole book will bless you. Amen? Especially when you ask the Holy Spirit to give understanding and you, and you, and you are honest about what you don't understand. I think that helps. That you don't just 
claim to know everything. You know, this is something that God wants to reveal to you. He said, everyone that hears it will be blessed. Everyone that reads it will be blessed. So I shouldn't be ignoring the book of Revelation. You shouldn't be ignoring the book of Revelation. But I'll tell you where to start. Start with those first three chapters. Because they are a message directly to the church. In fact, he says, he who has an ear, whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is what the Holy Spirit is still speaking to the churches today. He says this to the church in Philadelphia, to the angel, in other words, the messenger, the preacher, in the church in Philadelphia, write this, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Can you just, for a minute, hold that truth and believe it, that, that God has put before you open doors that nobody can shut. And God has put behind you shut doors that nobody can open. And you need to know that every door that God needs to be open will be open. And if it's not open and it's supposed to be open, you can pray like Paul prayed. Pray that God would open for me a door of utterance. But it starts with obedience. He says, he opens the doors that nobody gets shut. He shuts doors that nobody will open. Says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you, in front of you, an open door, which nobody can shut. So last week we talked about laying hold of that which God has set in front of you. About fixing your eyes. He goes on later in the, in the book to, letter to the Hebrews about fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, so that you will run the race with endurance. I'll tell you, the key in Christianity today is not speed, it's endurance. Thank God for speed, but, but that's not the point the Bible usually makes. I can't find any scriptures that really talk about running fast, but I can, I can find a whole bunch of them that talk about keeping going and, and, and enduring and persevering. Run the race with endurance. How do you do that? Fix your eyes on Jesus. He said, I've placed in front of you a door that nobody can shut because you have a little power and you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, but they're not. They lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and I will make them know that I've loved you. So this is the church in Philadelphia that's been greatly persecuted by their local synagogue. And they're, they're, they're Jewish people. But there's another group of Jewish people that's really been attacking them, saying they're not, you know, you're not, you're not of the, the faith. You've forsaken the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and Jesus turns it around and says, no, it's them that's forsaken me. But he says, I'm going to make them realize that I love you. Praise God. Isn't that, that amazing? Like, like that's, that's the greatest thing God could do for you is show that he loves you. I want to make them know that I've loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast. Hold tight what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold tight to what you have so nobody can take your crown. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are five different types of crowns that are mentioned, but these crowns always are, are referring primarily, now there's, there's different connotations beyond this, but primarily referring to the, the victor's wreath that was given to the one who won the race in the Olympics. 
Because the Olympics were a Greek thing, and they were going on when Paul talked about it. And he talks about the games. He talks about these a lot. He uses his analogy, but he talks about the victor's crown that you might win when you win a race or that a a triumphing uh, general might receive when he comes back to a triumph as he's conquered and he's coming home. There is a crown of victory. we, We hear about the crown of life, crown of joy, crown of perseverance. We hear about these things. And he says there's a crown. Jesus is saying there's a crown. Now, this is a crown that you've got to endure. You've got, you've got to persevere. You can't quit in the middle of the race. There's something God called you for. And, and, and Paul ties this, many of those crowns, he ties to what he's doing right now. He's saying, I'm doing this, and I know because of this, I'm going to receive a crown. In fact, he says, lots of people compete, but not everybody wins. He says, I'm running the race that I win. He says here, Jesus says, Jesus, red letters, I'm coming quickly. Hold tight to what you have. In other words, what you've been given. But what do they have? He told them before, right? He said, you have power. You have my name. You have my word. You have perseverance. These are the things you hold tight to. Hold on fast to what I've given you. Don't let go of it. When everything inside you says, ah, you just let go. It's it's been too much. It's too much to bear. It's not too much to bear. You stand strong in the strength of the Lord. And he says, hold tight so that nobody can take your crown. The thief would love to steal your crown. Steal the purpose from your life. Steal the victory from your life. Steal the authority off your life. Still, the giftings that God's placed on you, the grace that God's placed on you. And he can't just come in and snatch it. He can't just walk in your house and bypass all the alarm systems. He can't just come when you're there in the house, when the Lord's in the house. Satan's got no control over this. He's been defeated already. He can't come, reach, he can't, he's a robber, but he can't come and just take something from you. The only thing he's got is a lie. And Jesus said this, he said he is the father of lies. And he said, if you're of him, if you're getting your truth from him, if you're getting your facts from him, you won't recognize the truth when it comes. Because he says, he, even he, he's been a liar since the beginning, Jesus said. And he says, he, never does, he doesn't even know the truth when he sees it. And anybody that goes along this path is going to be the same way. So he says, the reason you can't hear what I have to say is because you're of your father, the devil. And they were greatly incensed at that. Right? As anybody would be. Jesus is not afraid to call out the devil influencing people, apparently. Right? Get behind me, Satan. You're of your father, the devil. I mean, this guy would not, uh, this guy would be canceled pretty quick in our day and age. And yet, we know above all that he is a, he is, he is a, a, a God of love. He's a God of mercy. That sometimes the most, in fact, often the most merciful thing God can do for you is expose your nakedness so that he can clothe you, is expose the poverty so he can give you gold, is expose your blindness so he can anoint your eyes with salve so that you can see. The most merciful thing God can do is call out when you're living in deception. Hold tight what you have. I pray today, and this is my hope for you and my prayer for you. I know every single person in this room that's received Jesus and given your life to him and called him the Lord of your life. Every single one of you has got a mission, a purpose, a plan that God's put on your life. And it doesn't just happen because he's such a good quarterback, the football sticks in your helmet. You've got to run. you got to get open. 
you got to reach up and pull it down. And then you got to hang tight to it, right? So many of us are so often led by fear. Instead of saying, you know, I've talked to football coaches that say this, when they're talking to their young kids and they're telling them how to hang on to that ball and run, because, you know, one of the worst things that could happen is it gets knocked out and you fumble it and then the t- other team gets it and runs the other way, right? So the coach will tell the kids, you hang on tight to that ball. As tight as you can, you hang on to the ball. You know what they don't say? They don't say, don't drop the ball. Because if you tell that kid, don't drop the ball, all he can picture is dropping the ball. That's all he can think about. Don't drop the ball, don't drop the ball, don't, please don't drop the ball. Right? We start from a place of defeat. We're starting from a place of fear. And often that fear is almost self-manifesting. It's because, it's because you tend to, when you're, what you're visualizing, I'm not trying to get new age here, but the Bible talks about this, what you set before you, what you're beholding is what you'll become. If you are beholding, if you say, I'm not righteous, I'm a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner, and, and, and that's what I'll always be, then no surprise when you sin. That's your image of who you are. A dog will act like a dog. A cow will act like a cow. A person should act like a person. And when you know the gift that God's given you of righteousness, you say, I must live righteously because it's who I am. I won't let go of this. And so the coach says to the kid, hold tight to that ball. Hold it. Hold on to it tight. Don't let anyone take it from you. You hold as tight as you can. I don't want you to be so led by fear that you're saying, I just can't make a mistake. I can't mess up. I can't do the wrong thing. I can't be deceived. Am I almost being deceived? I feel like I'm being deceived. I told you when I used to work at the Christian bookstore, there were some people, you know, people had their their paths, right? They had their, like they could walk in. There were some people that visited us often, and some people went straight for the candles and gift section because they just love those things. Some people went straight to the Bibles. Often that's where the unbelievers went. Isn't that funny? Unbelievers went straight for the Bibles, and it was an awesome opportunity. We got people saved in the bookstore because of that. But there were some people that went straight for, God help me, I don't know why this was so popular, but Amish fiction was a huge seller. <laughs> Somebody's got like three houses in the Hamptons because of Amish fiction. and I. <laughs> it's like the Christian version of the airport novel, I guess. Man, what are the Amish up to? I've always wondered. Let's buy 15 books. Anyways, no, no harm. If that's you, praise the Lord. Awesome. Glad you found something. But there'd be people that would always head straight for the cult section. Now, there's some good books in that section that tell you, make you aware of some other things. Some of you got friends that are, are part of something. You're like, I want to know how to talk to them. I want to know what they believe so I can know how to respond. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. But some people were so obsessed with it, that's all they cared about. Deception, deception, deception. But the problem with this is if all you study is deception, you'll never really know the truth. And you'll be deceived by something no one wrote a book about. Nobody would have wrote the book about this. Why? Because you've been obsessed with deception instead of obsessed with the truth. It's an old analogy, but it stands firm that anybody that's being trained on how to spot counterfeit bills does not get 50 counterfeit bills to study. They get the real thing to study. Then they recognize when something's not right. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. When you know the truth, you're aware of deception. And there's a time to call out deception. There's a time to say that's wrong. But 
what you need to do is you need to be so immersed, what Paul said to Timothy, be immersed in the prophecy over your life. Be immersed in the thing God spoke over you. He says, take pains and be absorbed in them. Be absorbed in who Jesus is. Be absorbed in his word. Be absorbed in what he's called you to and who he's called you to be with. Be absorbed in these things. Take pains with him. It doesn't mean pains like, ouch, that hurts. It means work hard. It means make, take action so that your progress will be evident to all. And I want you all to be able to say this boldly. It's about time. Can we just say, if there is a central truth that God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in it. He's the creator of all things by him, by his word. All these things hold together. Can, you, can, you just, can we all agree that if you took him out of the equation, everything else, your premise is so broken after that. Your, 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 everything, every, every hypothesis, every experiment will be so broken because you took the main thing out. Why are we taking our truth? Why are we accepting the vision of who we are, who we should be, from a society that has wandered from the truth of God as, a, as the creator. Listen, if I, I, I understand why an atheist lives like an atheist. I don't understand why a Christian lives like an atheist. And I've seen that far too often. And they've been deceived. And I want you to begin to call out the lies in your own life that you've believed. Call out the lies. You know, you might say, well, you know what? I've been studying, and I have all of these, these issues that I deal with. And so I don't know what you say, Pastor. Pastor, I'll never be able to do what you're talking about. And here's my list of why. And I want to tell you something. I, those things may all be factual, but there is a truth you're leaving out. The God who called you is able to bring you into the land he promised you. He's able to restore you. He's able to renew you. He's able to heal you. He's able to use you. And even in your weakness, especially in your weakness, his power is made perfect. His grace is sufficient for you. So I know you got your list of all the reasons this won't work. But can you just for once say, that may be facts, but it's not necessarily truth. So get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, lies. Get behind me obstacles, because the truth of the matter is I've got a race in front of me, and the doors that need to be opened for me have already been opened by the one who has the key. Amen? The one that's got the keys already opened it for me. My job is to hold tight to what I have so nobody can steal my victory from me. Amen? Would you stand up with me this morning? Thank you, Jesus.